Hey everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 86. Today I'm speaking with Adam Nathan, CEO at Almanac, a startup that's building the async OS for the future of work. We discuss what the future of work looks like, what to look for in an investor, how he thinks about pricing his product, and what Adam's thoughts are on the Miami tech scene. Enjoy. I'm here with Adam Nathan, the CEO at a company called Almanac, which is building the async OS for the future of work. And as you can see on his t-shirt, actually, I think it even says future of work or future of something or future future, maybe <laughs> if you're watching the video version of this episode, uh, welcome Adam. Thanks for being here on techie bites. You know, we've, We've kind of crossed paths a bit in the past. You gave me a demo of Almanac as well as uh, I think we met on Twitter. Uh, and then I know that uh, Bobby Goodlatte has also invested in your startup, which is incredible. And he's down here in Miami. Um, was, we'll get to the whole Miami thing. I'm curious if he had any influence in, in, in you checking uh, out what's going on here. Um, but I'm really stoked to have you on. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah, so let's, I always like to start off these episodes um, of the podcast of like talking a little about who you are, give the audience a, a bit of that and what you're building at Almanac and, and how you kind of got into that, you know? Sure. Um, so my name is Adam Nathan. I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, Almanac. Uh, and as you said, Jeff, what we're building at Almanac uh, is essentially an operating system for uh, distributed teams and work. Um, the, an easy way to think about it is it's like Google Docs at its core with a real-time doc editor, but we build version control under the hood to help you stay organized around closely related drafts and ideas and revisions, uh, and then workflows on top so that asking for feedback or assigning tasks or requesting approval or updating documentation are much more integrated and transparent than the five or six different tools that people use today to try and get basic, uh, basic work done. So before, before, before you go on, just kind of explain to us a little bit in your experience and, and why you ended up building this, like what are some, what's the kind of, what's the current workflow like for most, you know, for people who are, are um, who are doing the type of work that Almanac helps with? Yeah. So uh, my background's in systems engineering and uh, before Almanac, I was a product manager for seven years at uh, companies like Apple and Lyft and Varo, which is a fintech uh, startup and across, uh, companies, all those companies of various stages and sizes, um, I noticed that I was spending a lot of my time doing work that didn't feel like work, um, sitting in meetings all day long, uh, constantly checking my uh, Slack notifications or emails and responding to them while I, when I should have been listening, uh, copying and pasting uh, information from one tool to another to another. Um, and yet on things that were supposed to be simple, like, hey, did Jeff sign off on this document? Or is my team on the same page as me? Uh, or did people read the thing I sent? Uh, all those very basic tasks and ended up still taking, uh, I think, five to ten times longer than than I would expect they should. And so uh, instead of spending my days doing my job as a product manager, which was uh, I thought about building great products, I was spending my days just trying to like push push the ball through mud uh, on, on very basic <laughs> things. Um, yeah, that's no fun. And, Unless you like getting you know, it. <laughs> yeah, it certainly wasn't why I woke up uh, in the morning to to go to work, and it it also wasn't in my job description. And uh, and, it's, and it wasn't just me. I think uh, anybody who works in documents and also spreadsheets and presentations, anything that's kind of part of the core uh, Microsoft Office suite, um, is using tools that were designed uh, 40 years ago 
for um, an era when work was entirely done uh, in the same place in an office, often at the same time in a meeting. And as work has moved online and has become increasingly distributed, um, we, we now have to do all of our work in the browser in the cloud, but the core tools we use to do work, uh, like our document editors, really haven't evolved right. um, from the days when uh, you know, they, sat, they sat as part of a desktop. Gotcha. So just to further set the stage, if you will, um, for us, so our, our, our major companies like Apple and, and whatnot, are they, are they still doing work in the way you're describing? Like, are, are these guys even ones that need tools like what you're building or, or who are you targeting exactly with these? Like, is this like, and is this becoming, obviously this is becoming more commonplace and I think probably has been sped up a, a lot by the whole pandemic. Um, yeah. Uh, just, just to give you a reality check, uh, Microsoft Office uh, has 250 million daily active users. Uh, it is by far uh, the dominant core productivity suite on the market. Um, many companies uh, haven't even heard of uh, Google Docs or G Suite, uh, and um, newer players like us or like Notion um, are just you know words in the dictionary. Uh, and so while a lot of our a lot of our customers uh, are early stage startups that want to make remote work a competitive advantage or growth stage um, technology companies. Uh, we also serve companies that um, are across the uh, economy. Uh, we have uh, hospital chains, a uh, Domino's franchise, USA Swimming, uh, a, a helicopter company up in Alaska that uh, rescues people. Um, That's you cool. Know, <laughs> there, there are lots of people, uh, almost every company and most teams in, in most companies spend their days in documents and uh, most of them are still using Microsoft Word on a desktop. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's true, right? I mean, like, so, like, you're building the future of what you believe the f work looks like and how people will interact as opposed to um, going into meetings, let's say maybe, you know, they'll, they'll utilize a tool like Almanac um, to organize their thoughts and, and put together um, different kinds of documents that can be edited, which is one of the benefits of Almanac is that there's that group kind of that. I, don't, I mean, for those of you who are familiar with Git, I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about how it compares. Um, but so the future of work, what does that look like to you? Um, you know, like from right now, like, like forget like, um, you know, you know, forget everything that's been in the past, but like where we are right now, how are we moving forward? What are the, what are, what does the future of work look like in six, 12, two years from now, six months, 12 months, two years from now? Yeah, we think the future of work has three main elements. The first is that it's digital, uh, and this is already, all, all these things are already happening. So if uh, we think the future of work is almost a misnomer, it's basically the present of work for uh -huh. most people. Um, <laughs> but work has moved online, uh, and by that we mean into the cloud, into your browser, uh, such that you know all, all of your work and all of your team are now basically in the same place um, in the metaverse. Uh, the second trend that we see is that work is distributed. Um, while your team and your work are digitally in the same place, people themselves are physically spread out across um, time zones and geographies, uh, even countries now. Um, and the third uh, key trend that we see is that work is much more asynchronous. Uh, because people are spread out across time zones and geographies, they can't meet all the time. Uh, and so people have to um, work and respond and collaborate um, not necessarily at the same uh, time and place uh, every single day. And so those three trends, uh, work being digital, uh, work being distributed, and work being necessarily asynchronous, uh, we think are driving um, the future. 
And we don't really have to look very far to, to see what the future of it looks like because there are several professions um, that are actually living in that future. Uh, developers started using uh, tools for distributed collaboration in their browsers 20 years ago. Um, and so they give us a bit of a roadmap in terms of um, how people can successfully work together even when they're not in the same place. Uh, and the first key innovation that developers came up with is uh, a language called Git, which basically allowed developers to compare um, any two pieces of code next to each other. And that was really helpful because um, when you're developing software products, um, if you're working together, your code has to match up perfectly with somebody else's code. And you need to understand what exactly changed from one person's version of their code against yours. And so Git was essentially a comparative language that allowed people you know, in, in different uh, coasts of the country or even in, uh, on different continents to basically compare any two uh, pieces of work. And then um, the second innovation that developers came up with that has changed the way software is developed is GitHub. Uh, and GitHub is essentially a workflow collaboration platform that sits on top of Git that helps developers do very basic types of collaboration, like get a review on a piece of code that they've written to merge uh, into, into the master um, code base. And so uh, Git and GitHub revolutionized software development because before those innovations, in order to work together with a developer, you literally had to bring your desktop next to somebody else's desktop, pull up the lines of code, and then look at them visually and manually one by one to understand what, what changed. And so as with Git and GitHub, um, developers could work together anywhere, anytime, uh, and they didn't necessarily have to do it synchronously. They could uh, use uh, GitHub to basically send requests back and forth. Um, and if you contrast that with how you and I work today in documents, um, we're still doing a lot of manual work in order to get very basic things done, like uh, seek feedback or request approvals, or just get a sense of like, hey, did Jeff look at this document? And so um, developers and then also designers with the admin of Figma are essentially now living in a world that is uh, entirely digital, um, entirely distributed, and mostly async. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's interesting because, because first of all, I, uh, one question to you as a follow-up. So your team uh, that, that you're working with, are you, are you guys fully distributed? How do you think about that? Yeah, we're fully distributed. Uh, we have team members from Hawaii all the way uh, to, to Poland right now. Um, and so I think in probably nine or 10 different countries uh, and certainly in uh, almost every time zone um, across across those regions, and we yeah we we believe that meeting up in person uh, is an important part of building culture. We also believe that you do need meetings for certain types of collaboration, but we are mostly async, and I think we will never have an office. Gotcha. No, I, it's really fascinating to me. I I know you had mentioned like earlier that tools like from companies like Microsoft are still used predominantly across business industry as a whole and and how they haven't really moved into the next generation. And, I'm, and I know you're working on building those solutions, but how do you think about, let's say a Microsoft, which has acquired a company like GitHub. So obviously they're thinking about those things too, which is positive and I guess also validates a lot of what you're working on. Um, you know, are, 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 do you think they're gonna, you know, wanting to encroach on what you're doing as well? How do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a situation that that's likely a classic a classic disruption scenario. Um, you know, Microsoft uh, Microsoft Office, and in our case, Microsoft Word, is an amazing document editor. Uh, you know, for for creating and writing, there is really no better tool, uh, and they've been working on it for forty years. Um, 
But Microsoft uh, Word is, while it's great at document editing, is terrible at document management. And it's terrible at document collaboration. And that's because, as I mentioned, it was designed for a time in which collaboration and management happened in person, uh, often in a meeting. And uh, still a lot of the world up, up until, I think, a couple years ago was working that way. And so Microsoft didn't need to change the product because um, they have been monetizing a very successful formulation for, for many, many years. Um, but as with, the, with these trends that we've seen uh, start to sweep the world, uh, and especially during COVID, where everybody had to go uh, digital and distributed, uh, whether they liked it or not, um, what we're seeing now is people realize that there are um, other and, and better modalities for getting work done d d uh, beyond having everybody in the same place at the same time. And we think about Almanac as a cultural choice, not just a productivity tool, because what Almanac really represents uh, are ideas about how work should get done. You know, we believe that you don't need to be in the same place uh, in order to achieve great things as a team. Um, we believe that people should be able to get into a, uh, a flow state and really spend their days focusing on work that matters instead of um, trying to just stay organized uh, in all these overhead activities. Um, we believe that people shouldn't have to burn out in order to be productive. Uh, and if, if you look at what's happened in the past year, these aren't just our beliefs. These are, these are uh, facts that are borne out now in, in that um, when you just try and impose the old way of working with lots of meetings and lots of messages um, and disconnected tools on top of the new modality where people are distributed and, and working in the cloud, um, you, you see burnout happening in mass. You see people quitting their jobs in mass. Uh, there literally are not enough people who want to go to work these days to staff <laughs> companies. Uh, and we think that is entirely because um, work is not working for a lot of people anymore. And mm -hmm. so what we're building at Almanac um, is infrastructure that supports a different and we think better way of working, one that's more attuned to the way that um, people live and, and, and want to work now. And so you know, we see Almanac as an orange to Microsoft's Apple. Um, and we don't think everybody will want to switch over, but we think companies that will companies that will win in this new century uh, where work is uh, digitalized and distributed will need to change how they collaborate and will need to change how they manage. And we at Almanac are offering infrastructure for those winners. Gotcha. That's amazing. I, I love it. And I think I think you guys are going to find a lot of success. Um, you know, Microsoft, they had the opportunity prior to the, you know, to, to start working on those functionalities, those features, but they didn't. And now you guys are, 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 are really, you know, cruising along, building out great functionality and feature sets uh, for the future of work. And, and they have to play a little bit of catch up on that. Um, and, you know, we all know massive organizations can take time to, to make moves. I mean, that hasn't that was the case in the past with with Microsoft, uh, you know, and, and, and I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And I guess what I would say to that is, you know, we when it comes to word processing and document editing, our hope is that we offer a as good, hopefully better solution than Microsoft. But really where Almanac adds value to companies that Microsoft we think never will is in helping to integrate all the functionality you need to go from start to finish on basic types of collaboration. And so we think you shouldn't need five or six different tools like Slack and Asana and Zoom and your email in addition to uh, your word processor in order to do simple things like get feedback or update documentation or get analytics on who read something. Gotcha. And we think all of that should be deeply integrated into the place where the work is because the minute you separate collaboration from uh, where you're actually creating work, then it takes uh, a lot of manual uh, management to try and coordinate and connect everything together. Uh, and so we believe the secret sauce is actually integrating collaboration 
uh, and all the things people are already doing today and other tools right into your document editor so that uh, you can streamline the amount of overhead work you do and then have more time to focus on things that matter. I love that. And I think that's actually a really good way to segue. In. Like, Could you tell us a little bit about some of the way or some of the companies or ways uh, companies are utilizing your product right now as a way to replace meetings and messaging and uh, and things like that uh, in a, in, in a, in a, instead of doing that, they're using Almanac, right? So how, how does that working? Sure. Well, I'll give you two examples. Um, one of the major use cases for Almanac today is around documentation. And uh, the tools that people are using to manage documentation today, like uh, wikis, Confluence, Notion, or even just printing out paper handbooks, um, suffer from a fatal flaw, which is that despite taking a ton of time to get everything into the wiki, um, information goes uh, out of date almost instantly as the company continues to evolve and change. And none of the tools I just mentioned have a way for people to actually update that information. And so as a result, nobody trusts the wiki. People continue to use Slack or messages uh, or emails to get answers. And then six months later, somebody's like, we should create a wiki. And then the whole people <laughs> process starts over again. And we hear this all the time from our customers. Um, and Almanac solves that uh, in that anybody with read or common access to a document uh, can suggest changes to that document on a separate version. And we have a functionality in Almanac called branches, which are essentially linked versions of a document. Uh, and through branches, someone who has read access to a document can create a branch that they can basically mark up with track changes and comments and then submit it for review to the original document owners. And those document owners then can choose uh, which suggestions to merge into the main doc that everybody else can see uh, and which they actually want to send back and continue to iterate on. And so um, Almanac transforms essentially dead wikis into living documentation uh, where anybody on the ground can create suggestions. Uh, we call it progressive documentation while the owners of the information or knowledge still have quality control on top. Uh, and so um, through version control and workflows, we've essentially taken um, what are dead pieces of paper, even if they're online, and turned them into living documents um, that can evolve as fast as the organization is. Love that. All right, so let's switch gears slightly, or well, more, more than slightly. I know that you've uh, been building this, this company for a while. How long, have you, how long have you been working on Almanac to date? Uh, about two and a half years. Okay. So... I'd imagine during that two and a half years, you know, you've had your struggles as of most entrepreneurs over the course of their journey somewhere along the way or multiple times along the way, they face struggles. What are some of the most difficult or the most difficult challenge you face building Almanac um, to date? How, when, what have you done to overcome that challenge to continue to pursue what you're, what you're working on? Yeah, so I think about Almanac as a compounded product uh, in that what we're really doing is integrating functionality that today you can buy across five or six different tools into, into one uh, really convenient and uh, um, really seamless uh, platform. And when you think about the internet or uh, you know productivity subscription products, um, there are tons of really good point solutions out there. The internet has been around long enough that if you want a point solution for calendars or for to-do lists or for note-taking, there's many, many products out there that um, more, more, than, uh, more than do the job for you. Um, the problem is that because none of those products are actually integrated, uh, any value they create on their own is obviated by the fact that you have to spend time connecting them. Uh, and so that means, uh, I think Rippling is a good example of um, how, to, how a compound product can succeed in, in the HR space. I love uh, Rippling, space, by the way. You know, I'll vouch for that. I use, I use it for my company. Yeah, Rippling's great. Stripe is another compound product mm -hmm. where 
uh, essentially to add value, I think in these more mature spaces, you need to actually build a very big product that covers a lot of surface area. Mm -hmm. uh, and so from an implementation perspective, the difficulty there is it takes a long time <laughs> to build everything. Uh, and people expect not just the whole product to work well, but also all the integrated pieces um, to be as good, if not better than what you could get off the market. And so uh, it's building a product like Almanac takes a lot of patience and a lot of persistence uh, because uh, it's not, it's not as easy as the lean startup methodology was, was suggest of just getting an MVP out there, getting traction and then scaling. Uh, a product like ours takes many years of investment and a lot of focus around um, the quality of the individual pieces as well as how they all integrate together. Yeah. And so um, that, that uh, communicating that to investors, to our customers and to our team, um, which is essentially a, a different view than how some other companies might uh, launch and scale was, was definitely a, a management dynamic that we had to be successful at from the start. Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned the lean startup model, and and I think in between launching and then getting traction, you have the in the indeterminate amount of time that is finding product market fit, and all, <laughs> which sometimes never happens, um, you know, in some right. cases. And I, you're right. So it, it, you know, finding that 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 ability to get customers on board, and then also, especially when you're building such a large product like you mentioned, where it has a lot of kind of moving parts. Um, and you know, associated with it, there is just so much that can go wrong at, because of that. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you know when what what you release is is functional and can be used. But you know, people still have their feedback, right? And then you have to take that feedback, prioritize it according to your roadmap, and kind of figure out, all right, what do we work on next? What's the most important thing? And I I I, I personally have dealt with that myself and I so I can I can 100% understand what you're saying and where you're coming from on that it is a very delicate balancing act um one yeah. that you deal with daily yeah I mean the other the, the the second part of that challenge is uh a product like ours uh which is essentially a document editor has so many use cases that it can be hard to actually figure out where to start uh and so as you mentioned you know if it, trying to be all things to all people is not a recipe to get initial traction you often need to find a segment that will buy your you know, good enough product or sometimes worse product because it has one or two features that uh, competitors don't. And so in our case, there are uh, at least 12 different use cases <laughs> and you know, distinct market segments for the product that we're building. And if you, if you think about what uh, you use every day, what you use Microsoft Word or Google Docs for every day, um, you know, there's often hundreds, thousands, <laughs> millions of use cases across the world for these products. And so we spend a lot of time up front on customer development as well to investigate, you know, what would be the right segment to uh, to lead off with, um, because we do need to get traction uh, in our product so that we can then expand over time to serve more and more people and more and more use cases. And so, just figuring out where to start and where to focus uh, in a in a product category like ours, which is so broad, um, actually can can be a threat to startups if you don't get it right. How, so, so how are you thinking about that currently? How, like, what are you focused on particular um, markets or industries or uh, types of companies, anything like that? Like, where do, you, where do, you, where are you starting? How are you thinking about that? Yeah. So today we sell Almanac into uh, two distinct use cases. The first, which I mentioned, is around documentation, and the second is around internal collaboration, uh, like getting uh, feedback and approvals and analytics on uh, documents that an internal team uh, does. Um, and soon we will actually launch external ver versions of those use cases where you can publish 
a handbook uh, or wiki to the internet and let anybody suggest changes to it, even if they don't have an Almanac account. It essentially turns uh, web pages into forums or discussions. And also using our feedback and approvals workflows in that, in that second use case uh, across organizations for things like sales contracts or legal documents. Uh, and so, you know, those, those markets on their own are very, very large. Mm -hmm. um, and initially what we did was uh, invested deeply in customer development where we talked to probably uh, a thousand customers over six months um, across lots of different segments, uh, lawyers, researchers, academics, writers, um, high growth startups, uh, folks at very large enterprises to understand where their pain points were with existing solutions uh, and to see if the thing that we were building, which is the stock editor with version control and workflows, mapped up nicely to uh, the things that people um, hated about the products they were using today. And so we have a lot of research as a result of that, but what uh, was obvious pretty quickly, especially when you ask somebody to pay for your product, uh, is, is where the pain is um, so great and so severe that people will put down their credit card uh, even without even trying out the product. And so our first 100 customers at Almanac uh, paid for our product without actually having access to it themselves. It was just off of a demo with us uh, and and a, a splash page. And so That's for us, that dope. was a pretty good sign. Uh, <laughs> that is that, a good sign. That uh, you know we were onto something. Um, and the fact that it happened so so quickly and rapidly, especially compared with trying other segments, um, helped us feel confident that uh, investing you know in, in that particular market and direction further would eventually bear fruit, which it has. Love that. Oh, that's so, that's really great to hear. And I. I know we mentioned legal tech. I feel like I feel like the law has been so behind on terms of technology, and I feel like I've been saying that forever. But it keeps keeps ringing true. The more I talk to uh, lawyers and different legal startups, like there's just so much room for improvement there. And I think you know, a product like Almanac, I could see that doing great things for the legal profession. Yeah, we will. Uh, the <laughs> lawyers are are a major focus of ours uh, in the going into the second half of this year. Um, and, you know, in a lot of cases, the way that we think about market uh, and segment expansion is we want to feel pulled into that market. We want we want to see people on our wait list and get feedback from customers saying, why aren't you doing this? This product would be great for, uh, you know, X job, as you just mentioned. And, you know, we, we essentially develop our product roadmap around the feedback we hear from customers. And the more, especially when there's major strains of feedback or feature requests, that's always a good sign to us that if we make an investment, there'll be people on the other end who want to use it and pay for it. Definitely. All right, let's, let's shift gears. Let's talk a little about uh, raising money and investors as a, as a, as a founder and a CEO of a startup. Um, and you've been in the tech industry for quite some time, you know, how do you think about, I mean, obviously you raise money from, um, from form capital or at least from Bobby. Um, and that, so like when you, when you, like, did, how did, how did you come to that um, relationship where you, uh, did you guys know each other beforehand or, and, and when you're looking to raise money, what are some things you look for from investors, uh, on your end? Like, wh like, what do you like to see from an investor standpoint as a founder, um, when you, before you take that check? Yeah. So we are, uh, <clears throat> we are a, a seed stage company, uh, early stage company about to be a growth stage company. And so, uh, you know, I would qualify everything I'm about to say for, companies that are in an early stage and are trying to get off the ground with some initial funding. Um, and the other, the, the second thing I'll say as a caveat is not every company should be a venture backed company. Um, companies, I, I think the definition of a startup in my mind is a company that can grow really, really fast. And uh, taking venture capital is like uh, putting rocket fuel into your business where 
the business itself, the product and the business model need to be able to support um, the ability of, of taking that capital and turning it into revenue insanely quickly. Uh, there are many really great types of businesses that um, cannot and do not grow that fast uh, that are still very profitable and still create returns for uh, for their founders and and teams. And so I would just caution everybody that what I'm about to say applies to raising venture capital, and that's not actually the right answer for most businesses. In fact, um, if I didn't have to do it, I probably wouldn't do it again. Um, but uh, in terms of getting off the ground, raising money is really all about the story you tell, uh, especially at an early stage where you don't have a lot of data yet. Uh, and so uh, we spent a lot of time initially just figuring out how to clearly communicate what we were trying to do and what the world would look like if we succeeded. Um, I used to live in San Francisco, and I, I think San Francisco is still probably the best place to build a network uh, with investors and other founders. And one of the amazing things about San Francisco and the Bay is that um, your friends and just also people who believe in your idea are, are super generous about making introductions. And so we initially found a couple of investors who um, loved what we were doing and just really um, uh, really represented us um, and put their own reputations on the line to get us introductions to other investors. And it's kind of a, there's a network effect there where the more people who like your idea introduce you to more people and that can spread exponentially over time. Uh, and so we ended up raising about $9 million in our seed round, which was a lot of money at the time. And that was because we had a lot of people who really believed in us um, and, and helped us get access to, to more capital and more customers. I think to answer your other question about uh, picking investors, um, you know, in, investors are essentially uh, loss averse creatures. A lot of them uh, will say and do anything in order to uh, kind of keep you warm um, until they feel comfortable enough to do a deal. And we always say internally that uh, investors would do any deal if there was no risk. And so they're trying to, you know, <laughs> in, in a perfect world, um, you know, your company would have no risk uh, and they would invest, but because it's uh, venture capital and therefore really high risk, uh, most most investors are, st are still kind of unsure. And so there's lots of strategies that we have employed to get investors over the line. Um, and one of them is to kind of create FOMO. Uh, and you can see really successful founders doing that on Twitter all the time by creating buzz and momentum around their products and their stories, uh, making, making those investors feel like they would be missing out uh, unless they're in the round. Um, but in my experience, um, the investors who end up converting and giving you money have basically already convinced themselves that they want to invest even before uh, they meet you. And so um, if there's any inkling <laughs> that the investor is not sure, that's probably going to be a no. Um, because especially at an early stage, investors are really going off of conviction and belief and faith. And just like anything, there's there's lots of reasons why you shouldn't invest in an early stage company. There's uh, a very, very high likelihood that most of those companies will go to zero. Uh, and so in order to get someone over the hump, they really have to believe in what you're doing. And so we were lucky to find people like Bobby and a hundred other investors who really believed in what in what we were doing. Um, but there's also many good rational reasons uh, why people um, shouldn't have given us money and, and didn't. Uh, and that's true not just of Almanac, but of any any early stage company. And so I am very grateful to the investors who um, came in really early before there was a good reason to do so. And I think that's one of the things that makes um, the startup scene so special is that people do have faith in in things that rationally they shouldn't. Uh, and really go out on a limb to support founders like me. Yeah, you're. I mean, that's right. I mean, so I guess as a follow up to that, right? How you said you raised nine million in a seed round, um, which is a fair bit of money. Um, when before you took those checks, I would imagine that you you also 
uh, did some due diligence on some of these investors and made sure that they would be, they would add value to what you, I mean, you were looking for value or just cash at that point? We were, I, I think you always want value add investors. <laughs> I just wanted uh, to ask. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, in some spaces not, but in particular, because our target customers are early and growth stage startups, yeah. uh, the investors who we have can also make introductions. Exactly. To exactly. Companies. And did, uh, did you find that investors liked using the product when, when they were able to get their hands on it? Because I know that, you know, sometimes uh, in many cases, you know, if investor likes using the product, it makes it even all the more likely that they will tell their fellow investor friends and also even invest themselves. Um, did you find that to be the case as well? Yeah, well, to be honest, initially, you know, our first investors, we didn't really have a product. Uh, all we have were screenshots and prototypes um, and some, you know, early, early evidence of traction. But increasingly, as we've gone to market, now we have dozens of teams using Almanac every day. Uh, our more recent investors all have tried the product. And uh, again, yeah, the most excited investors already felt this problem even before they had heard of a company called Almanac. And mm -hmm. when they used our product, they could instantly see how it solved their pain point. And that's, uh, yeah, those are always the best investors that have experience it themselves and, um, and can see how you can help. I, I think the, the flip side of that is we are in a space that directly affects investors because it's document editing and work collaboration. There are lots of products that serve segments um, that don't necessarily align with uh, investors. And so I, I think it, can be unfair for some of those companies uh, because investors just naturally don't have empathy for, um, let's say, the the problems of um, uh, black women's cosmetics, because <laughs> uh, most venture capitalists are uh, statistically white men. And, right, they don't understand. Uh, so really, right. really good ideas in other spaces um, can have a hard time getting into investors' minds because they don't they don't know it themselves. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about, but to be mindful, I want to make sure. Uh, that we have some time to do the lightning round and, and some other things. So I'm going to skip, but I would love to talk a little bit about your pricing model because I know pricing is something that a lot of founders struggle with. And I did, yeah. I, I know uh, many, many, many founders I've had on this podcast that when we've talked about pricing, we're like, I just threw up a number and uh, surprisingly people paid it. <laughs> and like, then we increased it and then we saw if they were, you know, like, so there, how do you think about pricing? How have you thought about pricing Almanac uh, to date? Yeah. Uh, and so Almanac is still essentially in closed beta um, in that we we have a huge wait list, uh, but we pull people off of it to try out our product. And so while we were in beta, um, we established a pricing model um, that we thought would really set us apart against our competitors, most of whom charge per seat. Uh, and so Almanac today in beta is $99 per month for unlimited docs and unlimited users. Um, and that's a low price point for most team sizes, but especially for very large companies. And so our focus is on really supporting uh, collaboration at scale. And so we use that pricing model as really um, a marketing advantage uh, to get very big companies to start to use our product, which might be you know earlier than the tools they have today, uh, in part because of advantageous pricing. As we open up the product to self-serve later this fall, we will move to a per editor seat pricing model. And so if you create or have edit access to documents, uh, we will charge probably around 15 to $20 per editor seat and that's a similar structure to Figma, um, which also charges per editor seat. Um, and one of the, advan the advantages of that is that we will not charge uh, for um, people that are shared on a document with read or common access. And so it incentivizes companies to still share documents far and wide, uh, either with 
the thousands of people that are in their org as part of a wiki or on a public website where people can read community documentation or, um, or developer docs. Uh, and anybody who creates branches, uh, branches will always be free. And so people who have reader common access can still submit suggestions to documents. And that helps us actually grow Almanac because it allows people who are receiving Almanac uh, on the other side of, uh, of that collaboration cycle to experience the magic of our product um, without having to pay. And so we think about pricing as a growth lever in the future where you can design pricing in a way, as I just mentioned, to um, incentivize your users to uh, use and grow the product the way that you want them to. Nice. So I, uh, to keep this moving, um, I, before we get to the lightning round, I want to talk to you a little bit about Miami, uh, which I know you're not currently there. You're currently talking to us from New York City. Um, but I know that you did spend some time in Miami uh, and you mentioned you were originally from San Francisco. So just curious, what made you want to uh, check out what's going on down here? What did you think when you were here? Yeah, so uh, we had made plans to um, come down to Miami even before it uh, really started to gain traction as a startup hub. <laughs> uh, I've always loved Miami for the diversity and for the weather and the community. And so I thought it'd be a great place to spend some of the colder months during COVID when there was really no reason to be in San Francisco or, or really any other city. Uh, and um, it was amazing to see as we were down there how um, the city really took off in terms of uh, attracting amazing uh, startup talent and investors. Um, I think on the on the positive side, um, Silicon Valley is uh, and San Francisco are, are really more ideas, I think, than physical places. And uh, Silicon Valley has now been uploaded to the cloud in the same way we think all work will be. Uh, and that means that uh, people can live uh, anywhere, uh, including Miami. Uh, and so, you know, now the the ethos of Silicon Valley, the ability to start companies and collaborate, um, you, you can do from anywhere. And so I think the success of Miami is a um, is a great data point uh, towards that trend that um, you can live in Miami and build a community in Miami and um, still be able to start and fund and scale uh, scale companies. I, I think. Miami is still at the very beginning of its trajectory, and I'm excited to see what happens over the next couple of years. I think there's a bunch of areas of technology that make sense in a place like Miami, like crypto. Um, but I, I think that there are other subcultures like hardware engineering or biotech that uh, are probably better located in other places. And I think that's um, that's how it should be. I think you know work and people should be distributed, and, and people should be able to live wherever they want to, uh, regardless of where their company is headquartered. And Again, I think Miami represents all these ideas, and more than that, it's just a, it's a, it's a lovely place to live. Um, the diversity of the city uh, keeps it open to new ideas and new cultures, and uh, I found it to be a real melting pot um, that kept me really stimulated, uh, you know, during and and after work. So you you planning to come back visit again? Yeah, it's on our short list of places to move to permanently. Uh, we and so we're we're here in New York. Uh, where I grew up, um, seeing how New York fits. Uh, I, <laughs> I grew up in New York um, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Miami is a, a, is a super strong contender. And I think we were uh, really pleasantly surprised to be honest with how livable the city was and, uh, yeah, how dynamic and diverse it was. And so, uh, we, we will hopefully be back. Love that. Uh, and just to kind of build on your point real quick, before we get to lightning round, you know, I, I love, I mean, you know, Phil Libin from, mm-hmm. I mean, he, mm -hmm. they just raised $100 million from SoftBank. And I was talking to him 
I don't know, a couple weeks back and, or a couple months ago, actually. Um, but he's in Arkansas of all places. I mean, that's just where he's been hanging out during the pandemic. He doesn't know where he's going to end up next or if he's going to move again. Um, but I think that that just speaks to exactly what you're saying that we live in a world now uh, and, and, you know, you know, in large part because of the pandemic has really accelerated the fact that we have seen we can work from anywhere. Everything can be uploaded to the cloud. There is any city can technically really be a tech city, uh, you know, and I think that that like you're talking about, that's where we need to kind of move to as opposed to relying on just one or two major cities as hubs. Um, there can be multiple cities that that develop in a way uh, that are beneficial. Yeah, for the future of work in general and for tech. Yeah, and I think that's not just great for founders like me or investors, uh, but also for regular professionals. Uh, and that now, um, where wherever you are, you can get hired for the job of your dreams. And you know, we I imagine a world in the future where what's important is not where you went to college or where you lived or where you last worked, but really what you can do, as demonstrated by your work on the internet. Uh, and I think this aligns nicely with what we see happening with creators today. But I think eventually, you know, everybody who works in companies, I think takes a job to create and to build and to to, to do stuff that matters. And um, what I see happening with the move to distributed work is that people are in, people are getting hired, um, not for what's on their resume, uh, but for, for who they are and what they can do. And so I think this trend is is great for everybody. Agreed. All right, Adam, we made it all the way through the conversation, the hardest part of this podcast, if, if you want to call it the hardest part. We are now at the lightning round. Uh, so whenever you're ready, you let me know and we'll get started. Sure, let's do it. All right, here we go. All right, Adam, first question. If you could acquire one skill without any effort, what would it be? Dancing. Ooh, that's a good one. Would you want to go on Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> <laughs> like hip-hop dancing. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Um, what's your favorite artist or band? The Beatles. Oh, that's a good choice. Can't argue with that. Um, <laughs> very diplomatic, too. Uh, what two celebrities, dead and alive, would should have a meal together? Uh, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I think they're both dead, but we'll give it to you. They're both dead. Yeah. They're both dead. I, I thought that was part of, the, uh, dead part of my option. No, no, dead and alive. My bad if I misspoke dead. on that. Um, that's okay. We'll keep going. Batman or Superman? Superman. How much? And last question. How much time do you spend on social media per day? I know you're a very active Twitter user. Uh, actually, not that much. Probably 30 minutes. Interesting. Do you schedule your tweets or how do you do it? I do, and I, I try to spend as much of my day focusing on uh, on the work that matters, and uh, Twitter is not part of that. <laughs> That's <me>. true. <laughs> I love that. All right, well, it's very it's very helpful to schedule your tweets. Sometimes I find, um, you know, I found uh, other people, other founders, including myself, sometimes I think of something, I'm like, I just have to tweet that um, at the moment. But it's probably best practice, I would agree. Uh, when you're building a startup, you got to focus your efforts on things that matter, as Adam said, and... You know, your tweets are a great way to, you know, to create the FOMO and make some noise about what you're doing and engage with other founders uh, in the space or other people in the space, um, but should not be where you spend totally. the majority of your time on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Twitter is great for advertising. Uh, the, the idea is that, you know, we, 
we believe are really powerful, but I, it's also really easy to get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think there's, there's more to life than Twitter <laughs> on your computer. And so, yeah, I try and spend as much as I can actually, you know, off my laptop uh, out in the real world. Love that. And I think we all should be doing more of that. And I think many of us are after the pandemic. We, I think it's been an eye opener for many of us, including myself. Um, totally. With that, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. If anyone who's listening uh, wants to get in touch with you, learn more about, learn more about Almanac or about you or what you're building, uh, how can they do that? Well, they can go to almanac.io and sign up for a free trial, uh, or they can follow me on Twitter at Adam P. Nathan. Perfect. Well, Adam, again, thanks so much for being here. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting our podcast at anchor.fm slash best techie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.